Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. We will get to chapter 13, but turn to Exodus 3 to begin. Let me say here by way of introduction, for whatever reason yesterday, I'm having some throat issues going on here. So you had to deal with it with Pastor Tom in the main service. You might have to deal with it a little bit here today uh, in Omega, but I trust it won't be a distraction. I promise I didn't get it from him. He called and wanted to hang out. I said, no, I'm not hanging out this weekend. So let's go to Exodus chapter 3. The title for today's message is By the Mighty Hand of the Lord, and you'll see why that is so apparent as we get into Exodus 13, but I want to start in chapter 3. You'll remember back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the first time that God and Moses encounter one another at the burning bush, and it was there in Exodus 3 where God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and he calls Moses to be the human instrument that would lead Uh, his people, God's people, out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land. And it was there also that God revealed himself uh, as the I am. And then God, in a proleptic way, a, a futuristic sort of prophetic way, he describes to Moses on that scene exactly what's gonna happen in the rest of Exodus, essentially. But what's interesting here in that description If you go to chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, God tells Moses, again, this is in advance, he says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So verse 19 here is essentially teaching us that no human power Moses nor Aaron will be able to get the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. In terms of human strength, it cannot be done on a human level. There is no way, shape, or form, according to God here, that Pharaoh would let the people go by any human means. Uh, But you notice verse 20, God says, look, it's going to take divine power. It's going to take my mighty hand. I will stretch out my hand and I will strike the Egyptians. So God says in advance, it will be by his mighty hand that his people will be freed from slavery in Egypt. Now, that idea sort of presents itself um, behind the scenes, if you will, through the plague narrative, because we don't come across that type of language or that expression until chapter 13 that we'll study today. But if you remember back to the 10 plagues, as those plagues are initiated, remember it was always the hand of Moses that was cast across the earth, or it was the rod or the staff of Moses that was cast across the land, and then that plague would come. You remember that? So that was signaling to us that Exodus 3 reference where God says, it's by my mighty hand. And so Moses and Aaron were merely the instruments that that would happen. Well, that proleptic look that we saw in Exodus 3 of the mighty hand of God ultimately came to fruition in the plagues, culminating with the 10th plague of Passover. But in our text today, we will look back on the 10th plague or Passover to highlight once again the mighty hand 
of God. So in the text that we come to this morning, Exodus 13, God demands that his people remember Passover. But follow me here. Here's what he tells them to remember, not just the event, because he's already established that they must remember the event. He tells them they must remember Passover because it was by his mighty hand that he spared the firstborn and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. That is the heart of Exodus 13. So Exodus 13 really brings together that first meeting with God and Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3, and it brings to sort of a conclusion or sort of a close that it is by the mighty hand of God that people have now left Egypt. And we've seen a little bit of that at the end of chapter 12. So you can take your copy of the scripture. Let's go to chapter 13. This chapter lays out nicely into four sections, four sections. So that's going to be the breakdown of our time this morning. We'll look at these four sections as they come. Let's begin here by uh, looking at uh, the first one, and that is the consecration of the firstborn demanded. I know that sounds riveting, but that's what we've got in the text. (laughs) The firstborn will be consecrated. That's in verses 1 through 2. Let's read those together. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So on the day of the Israelites' departure from Egypt, for the first time in Exodus, so this is the first time we come across this language, we are introduced to the law or the concept of the consecration of the firstborn. But you'll notice there in verse 1 that there's a familiar expression. Notice chapter 13 verse 1 tells us that it is God in charge of this. Just like with every plague, all ten of them, it began with the Lord said to Moses. Here as we work into the consecration of the firstborn, It begins the same way, the Lord said to Moses. So in unequivocal terms, Moses makes it clear that he isn't responsible for what follows. So he wants to to set the record straight from the beginning. If the nation of Israel is supposed to consecrate the firstborn child and animal perpetually, Moses wants everybody to know, hey, I didn't make this up when I got delusional or something in the wilderness. He's saying this comes directly from God. Now, the timing of Moses' insertion of this material about the firstborn makes complete sense, right? I mean, it makes sense that we're having a firstborn discussion after the 10th plague and the death or the salvation of the firstborn, depending on if you were an Egyptian or you were an Israelite. So in light of the death of the firstborn, the firstborn male, and potentially even firstborn females, according to Exodus 12, 30. Now, God is saying, because I have saved the firstborns, I am requiring and demanding that you consecrate the firstborn humans and animals. So, throughout the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you will see about a dozen passages that sort of hone in on this firstborn idea. Now, we're not going to go through those texts 
uh, today. But just so you are aware, this isn't the only one. Exodus 13 isn't the only one. So this firstborn consecration is really a major theme in the first five books of, of the Bible. But let's ask this question. What does it mean to consecrate every firstborn to God? Well, the word consecrate is an interesting word. It means to cut. It means to cut or to uh, set apart or to dedicate or to transfer. So God says, and he gives a command here, that every single family is to set apart the firstborn. He instructed his people to dedicate the firstborn male or man or animal. Now, what does this mean from God's perspective here? Well, ultimately, this demonstrates God's ownership of the first of everything, whether it's man or animal. This demonstrates God's ownership over the entire family, but it also demonstrates God's sovereignty and supremacy over uh, the entire work sphere or, or the harvest you would see in sort of Old Testament language. I think Eugene Carpenter sums it up well. By controlling the firstborn, Yahweh controlled the entire political, familial, and community aspects of his people. Its biological feature even lay with the privileged position of the firstborn. So what is God doing here? What is he establishing for his people that day or so after they have come out of slavery? God is saying, look, not only have I redeemed you, and, and you have witnessed that firsthand, but now I'm telling you that every firstborn Every human is to be consecrated to me, dedicated to me. And not only that, but your entire harvest, your entire workforce. So if you could summarize that, all of your life is dedicated to me. Now, how long were the Israelites supposed to set apart the firstborn? Was this just for the Exodus generation? Well, no, look at verse 2. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. You could, you could literally translate it, it is mine. God is saying that his people, God is saying that his people's work, their efforts are, are all of his. Now you can see what's happening here. If you've been in our Exodus study since the beginning, you can see exactly what's happening. The nation of Israel has gone from an evil master, Pharaoh, chapter 1, uh, to a new master here in chapter 13. They've gone from um, a sort of a human-level sovereign. Remember, the, the people thought and esteemed Pharaoh as a god, to the actual sovereign god of the universe. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh, as he is presiding over God's people, he's saying, we need to murder every firstborn. We need to murder all the males so this population won't continue to increase. Jump forward to chapter 13. Now God is saying, you dedicate your family to me. You dedicate your life to me. So you can see sort of if you're contrasting the two. Clearly, being under the sovereignty of the Almighty God is better than being under Pharaoh and that's what's presented here with the consecration of the firstborn. Now, we'll come back to that here in just a few moments, but let's work into the second section of Exodus 13, the Feast of Unleavened Bread Revisited. The Feast of Unleavened Bread 
revisited. So let me recap what we've already learned about the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus chapter 12. Let me recap it for us here. So God instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a seven-day period that began the day, or let me say it this way, it began right after Passover in which his people were to remember and celebrate God redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. They were to celebrate this feast for seven days or one week. If you remember, with the institution of Passover, God told the Israelites they were to start a new calendar. It was a lunar calendar. In other words, Passover would be the beginning of their year. So they would, they would pick the sacrificial lamb on Abib 10. They would sacrifice the sacrificial lamb on Abib 14. And then on Abib 14 through Abib 21 is when they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what did they do for this feast? Well, they were commanded to remove all leaven from their homes. It couldn't be in their food, and it could not be in their household. Remember, we talked about two reasons why they had to do that. First off, because leavened bread, leavened bread, that is, could be made quickly. So leavened bread symbolized symbolized the swiftness that they were to leave Egypt. Uh, But secondly, yeast was considered an intrusion or a corruption or an insertion. So the idea was, now that you are being brought out of Egypt, we don't want any of their corrupt culture to stay with you. Now, to some degree, they were able to shake off a lot of that, (laughs) but when we study Exodus 32, clearly some of it stuck along, stuck with them because they erected a golden calf, which would have been straight from Egyptian culture. But here was the seriousness of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In other words, you had to participate in this, and if you did not, we are told in Exodus 12, 19, you were to be cut off from the people of God. So this is a serious feast. This had to be done. Now, I rehearsed those details for two reasons. First, just to remind you of where we've been in Exodus 12. If you've missed that message, just go back and read Exodus 12, and you'll see what I just went through. But secondly, what we're about to see in this text are several repeated elements. Now, typically, and I'm not saying you do this, but typically what happens, and I've talked to you about this since our study in Genesis, typically what we do when we read Hebrew narrative is that we get to repetitious portions and we're just like, oh, this, they're just repeating this again, like I already know this, right? Like it's just not that important because it's been repeated like four or five times. And that does happen in Hebrew narrative and, and that is okay. But what I want us to understand, there's really a twofold purpose for the repetition. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. They don't have a copy of the scripture in their hands, on their phone, on their iPad, in the computer, on podcast, wherever you want it. Basically, you can get a copy of the scripture. They need the repetition because they are listening to the scriptures being read out loud. So it was critical to get the repetition. I mean, I can't remember anything unless I hear it like multiple times. And even then, I'm like, my memory's atrocious. But the, the second reason uh, that the repetition is there, is because the repetition draws you in to now search for where the differences are. So let me say it this way. Exodus 12, Exodus 13, they both talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
There are similarities between the two chapters, but what you can do as a homework assignment this week, lay out those texts right next to each other, embrace the repetition, and then look for the nuances and differences in between the passages. So that's what we're doing in Exodus 13 this morning. We're looking for the nuances. So that is one of the goals as we work through verses 3 through 10. I want us to see the nuances and the additional material that Moses brings in at this point. So first off, he begins by making a call to remember the mighty hand of God. So let me say it this way. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is discussed here in chapter 13 to give us more information about the feast, but to also attach it to the fact that it was by the mighty hand of God that the Israelites were taken out of slavery into the wilderness and towards the promised land. Now, what are they supposed to remember? This is key. What are they supposed to remember? Well, they're first off supposed to remember that God brought them out of Egypt. That God brought them out of Egypt. And that's verses 3 through 4. Let's read it. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. So there's our expression. You can underline that. So he goes on, eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. So you can see here from the introductory formula in verse 3 that Moses is giving a speech to the entire nation. He's simply communicating to them what God has already told him about the Feast Unleavened Bread. That's the pattern in Exodus. Remember when we went through the plagues, God told Moses, hey, here's what's going to happen. And then Moses would go and tell the people, this is what's going to happen. That's exactly what we have here. But it's interesting, and you can underline this in verse 3 if you'd like, that in verses 1 and 2, the you is plural. But here, beginning in verse 3 on throughout the chapter, it goes to the singular. So what I want us to see here is Moses is speaking to all of the nation, but he's doing so in a way where he's pointing his finger at every single individual. He's making this personal is basically a way uh, to say it. So verse 3 iterates, reiterates what we've already learned in chapter 12. The day after Passover begins this feast. No yeast should be eaten. No yeast should be in the household, signifying how quickly they were to get out of Egypt. And I mean, imagine if you were in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. Would you just linger around? Well, not a chance. You would get out of there as quick as possible, and that's what they did. Now, notice verse 3. Here's the additional material I talked about. Because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Four times in this chapter, the mighty hand of the Lord, or the strong hand of the Lord, is cited as a reason the Hebrews got out of slavery. That's why this is the title of the message. That's why this is the theme of the chapter. Moses is bringing us in to understand this point. This concept dominates the chapter. And we saw that as we looked at Exodus chapter 3 and the story of the burning bush. This is critical. Moses is bringing to a close this idea that it was by God's power. 
So for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to remember that redemption didn't come by the hand of Moses. It didn't come by the hand of Aaron, but it came by the mighty hand of God. But they were also supposed to understand that secondly, God would bring them into the promised land. So as they're thinking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they are to remember the mighty hand of God bringing them out of Egypt, so they are to look back, but they are also to understand that it will be by the mighty hand of God that they will get into the promised land. That's verse 5. Look at it with me. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. So this verse, again, if you know Genesis and you were here in our Genesis study, you'll recognize that verse 5 is a call back to Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 28. 12, 15, 17, and 28. Those chapters specifically say that God will take his people to the promised land. (laughs) So Moses is saying, remember the feast of unleavened bread and know that it is the fruition or the conclusion of your redemption when you make it into the promised land. Observe this feast knowing that reality. Moses does a fantastic job here of connecting that first generation Exodus people with what had gone before them over 500 years prior. The same mighty hand would be taking them to the promised land. By the way, the word swore there in verse 5, it means to make a pledge or an oath, an irrevocable promise. Uh, let, Let me just ask you, if God makes a promise, will he bring it to fruition? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we see here. So not only were they to remember the mighty hand of God, that's great, like we need that theological framework, they needed it as well, but they were to respond to the mighty hand of God. Verses 6 through 10 gives us what their response should be. Again, this is all under the feast of unleavened bread. Look at verse 6. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand. And a reminder on your forehead that, it, that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Now as you read that with me, you'll notice there in verse 8 some additional material. Look at verse 8. On that day tell your son... What are you supposed to tell them? 
I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. From generation to generation, parents were instructed, particularly the fathers, were instructed to teach their children, to teach and instruct their family about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and what it meant. Tell, by the way, the Hebrew word for tell comes from a root word that means narration. This is amazing. Moses, by the authority of God here, is telling all of the fathers, all of the husbands, that they are to narrate the story to their family. This this simply means just tell them the story. (laughs) Tell them that it was by the mighty hand of God that people that were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years were freed. It wasn't by Moses. We're grateful for Moses. But it was by the mighty hand of God. And again, look at the language here in verse 8. It's personal. I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Of course, the whole nation was redeemed, but it was to be understood that the entire nation was made up of individuals and the fathers were commanded here to narrate the story to the next generation. Because as those children would grow up and they would leave father and mother and two would become one and they would start a family, what were they to do? Narrate the Exodus story to their kids. It was supposed to be generational. Notice verse nine, another new piece of information. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Notice those three expressions. Sign on your head, a reminder on your forehead. It's to be on your lips. Of course, that's not to be taken literally. Most likely, they didn't you know, mark up their body with these reminders. But metaphorically, this is telling us that all of their being All of their existence, everything that they had was to be rooted and grounded in this reality that God had redeemed them. That's what this feast was celebrated for. Notice at the end of verse 9, new information again, verse 9, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. There it is again. They were never to forget this, by the way. Look at verse 10. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. Absolutely critical for this people to do. So that's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, revisited to some degree. Let's move to the third section in Exodus 13. The law of the firstborn expanded. Ha, just when you thought we were getting away from the firstborn, we're coming back. For more. The law of the firstborn expanded. This is verses 11 through 16. So Moses, he comes back to this firstborn concept. That's because the firstborn concept was not only linked to Passover, but it was also linked to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So because they were spared during the 10th plague, firstborn humans and animals were to be offered to the Lord. So in these verses, 11 through 16, Moses expands on the consecration and law of the firstborn. 
And he gives the people specific instructions on what they must do when they arrive to the promised land. So don't miss this. What's listed here, they aren't supposed to do until they get to the promised land, which is implied that they will make it to the promised land. But they were just really dumb for 40 years in the wilderness and didn't take God at his word. Only two of them made it out, by the way. We'll talk about that another time. So what were they supposed to do? Well, here's the regulation. They were to redeem the firstborn. That's not shocking information. We've already come across that. We've sort of been in this redemption sort of mindset the last few weeks in class. As Moses expands the law of the firstborn, the consecration of the firstborn, he says that you must redeem the firstborn. This isn't optional. So when the nation of Israel arrives in the promised land, they are to give over the Lord for every first offspring of human and animal. Look at verse 11. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. It's getting a little violent here. We're just warming up to some of this. So when they get to the promised land, they're supposed to implement what Moses lays out here beginning in verse 11. Notice, and you saw this, three times the word redeem is used. Maybe the translation you have says ransom. It means to buy back, to buy out. Now you can see why the New Testament writers come back to Passover. They come back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they come back to this firstborn idea, right? I mean, this is just oozing Christ all over the place. So verse 12, Moses focuses on the animal world. He says specifically livestock. So this would include oxen, sheep, and goats. They they were considered the clean animals, inappropriate for sacrifice. That also means that there were unclean animals. And that's ultimately what he's going to describe in these verses. In order to offer up or redeem the firstborn animal, it had to be an appropriate animal. It had to be clean livestock. And by the way, what's being offered up here isn't a sacrifice for sins. That's like Leviticus type stuff. Right here, we're just focusing on offering up in a, in a way to dedicate what the Lord has given you. So this has nothing to do with atoning for sins. That, that'll come later. But what if you had an unclean animal? Well, if you had a sheep, oxen, or a goat, you, you, you were great. No problem. Sacrifice the firstborn, you're good. Remember the mighty hand of the Lord, amen. But if you only had unclean animals, let's say, or you had both clean and unclean animals, what would you have to do? Well, Moses gives us an example. It's pretty riveting here, I think. Look at verse 13. Here's how you deal with the offering of a firstborn unclean animal. Moses uses a donkey for an example. The unclean animal wouldn't be sacrificed, but a clean animal could take its place. But 
If there was no clean animal to take its place, what would you do? Moses says in verse 13, there still needs to be an action. You have to follow the regulation. What is that? Well, verse 13 is clear. But if you do not redeem it, if you don't substitute it, if you don't ransom it, what do you do? You, you break its neck. Now, why break the neck? Because breaking the neck would create a stark contrast between the organized sacrifice of a clean animal and the breaking the neck would clearly demonstrate that this wasn't a sacrificed animal. I mean, you can, you can understand the picture. You can go back through Passover and chapter 12 and look what all had to be done in terms of sacrificing the animal and preparing the animal to eat. Well, with, with a donkey, you just simply broke its neck. So nothing about that donkey, besides it's a different animal, clearly, would, would look different. Everything about it would look different than the actual sacrificed animal. Sacrifices were always ordered. They were always structured. They were always organized. I know that seems weird to say that about sacrificing animals, but it's true. So, if you had a donkey, for example, and there wasn't any clean animal to redeem that donkey, you had to break its neck. And then verse 13, look at verse 13. Verse 13 ends by calling to redeem or ransom the firstborn human sons. Again, this is a stark contrast between Pharaoh in Exodus 1, who wanted to slaughter all the babies. Here in Exodus 13, we're told that they are to be redeemed or dedicated unto the Lord. The book of Numbers tells us, by the way, that you would pay five shekels to the priest for the firstborn. That's what you would do for its ransom or its redemption. When we study the book of Numbers, we'll get there. That's after Leviticus, though. I'm going to keep plugging that. It's never going to get old plugging that up here. Okay, so that's the regulation. That's the regulation. Next, let's look at the commemoration to remember the mighty hand of God. I mean, why are we redeeming animals? Why are we even breaking necks of donkeys? We're told here. In verses 14 through 16, we are to do this to remember the mighty hand of God. Follow along as I read verses 14 through 16. In the days to come, when your son asks you, again, this just, let's stop there. This just implies that these types of conversations are happening within the household. This implies that these types of conversations are happening amongst the community. Uh, this, this is what God's people do. I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir here. You guys get this, but this is what God's people do. We talk about the things of God. So here in verse 13, in, or 14 rather, in the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand of the Lord, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. 
Slavery in Egypt, the plagues, Passover, they were never to be forgotten. The consecration of the firstborn sons, the sacrifice of the firstborn animals were to be a constant reminder not just of Yahweh God, but the mighty hand of God that brought them out of Egypt. Now, I I keep repeating that because it keeps being repeated in the text. Verses 14 and 16 tell us again two more times that the mighty hand of God was the reason why. Now, you'll see here at the end of verse 16, we've already seen language like this before in our chapter. But of course, Moses isn't suggesting there be literal signs on their foreheads and hands. But again, they were to have their entire mind consumed with the fact that God had redeemed them. This was to mark their life. Well, let's look at verses 17 through 22. We see a subtle shift in the subject matter in our fourth section with the journey towards the promised land continued. Promised land continued. I'm missing a D there. So let's begin here in verse 17 with God's providential guidance. God's providential guidance. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now, As we look at these verses, it may seem sort of abrupt and jarring that we've been talking about the firstborn and we've been talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread to all of a sudden, well, God's leading the people to the Red Sea, right? The liberals, by the way, I mean, they freak out at stuff like this. They think that this is evidence of the fact that all of these late insertions and all of this manipulating of the text has happened, and that's why you see sort of uh, these odd transitions. Of course, they're wrong. That's not what's going on here. If you step back and you look at chapter 12 and 13 as a whole, this makes complete sense. Follow me here. Chapter 13 begins with Passover. It moves to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It moves back to Passover, and then it describes the departure from Egypt, the beginning of the Exodus. That's what we went through last week. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, Exodus. When you get to chapter 13, firstborn, Feast of Unleavened Bread, firstborn, Exodus. It's, it's laid out perfectly. It's got that symmetry here. This isn't a late insertion by someone 1,000 years after Moses. No, Moses, he, he just organized it that way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is mapped out perfectly. So it makes sense here that we now start working into really the main narrative of the Exodus story. They, they have left Egypt. This is good news. So God has not left him alone. God's providential guidance here is clear in verses 17 through 18. Now, in these two verses, we see God's providential guiding of two million people. Two million people. 
as they leave Egypt. Now, a lot of people get the idea that they leave Egypt and it's just one massive riot kind of atmosphere and everybody's just running around like crazy, like with no direction or order or structure, just trying to get somewhere. That's the opposite of what we see in this passage. In fact, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, Moses burning bush, the conversation between God, God tells Moses that you and all of the people are going to come back to Mount Sinai. So where do we think the people are going first? Mount Sinai. That's where they're heading. They will go to Mount Sinai, then to the promised land. Now, of course, there's a few hiccups in the road, like 40 years of them. But they started out like with real direction, attempting to get to real places. So verse 17 picks up with that travel narrative. Now look at verse 17. God didn't lead them through the Philistine country. Why? Well, verse 18 says, for if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Now, yeah, just a couple pages over, and I'm not, we're not going to look at that now. But what do the people start doing to Moses? They immediately start grumbling and complaining. By the way, that's after he just, God parted the Red Sea, and they walked through two walls of water all night. And they start complaining. So clearly, they're not ready for war. God knows this. So God says, we're going to take them a different route. Even though this route is going to be longer, I know their spiritual condition. I know what's best. We're going a different way. The issue here isn't the war or challenge that they would face. The issue is their spiritual life. It ebbed, it flowed, it was immature. If they were hit with any adversity, they would fold. And we'll see that as we keep moving on in our study. Now, we're not sure who this army is, but I think this is the best possibility, that there's probably Egyptian troops stationed outside of Egypt. I mean, remember, Egypt is a powerhouse. Well, they were a powerhouse. Not anymore. God destroyed them. And he will destroy all of their army at the Red Sea. But there would have been Egyptians stationed amongst the perimeter of Egypt. So God says, look, we're going to go another way. Look at verse 18. So God directs their steps towards the Red Sea. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. Guys, just as God is in charge of establishing the firstborn dedication and consecration, God is also in charge of taking his people where he needs them to be. And in God's infinite mind, he knows the Red Sea awaits, and he knows he's going to use the Red Sea to bring about the final point, the climax of salvation. So they don't go the way of the Philistine, they go the way that God has prescribed. Now, stay with me here. Verse 18, the desert road toward the Red Sea. Now, the last time we saw this word, was all the way back in chapter 2 when Moses was put in an ark, a basket, and he was sent down the Nile River amongst the reeds. Same word. But what I want us to understand is, and this is you've got to take all of Exodus as a whole to see this, there's a connection between Moses being placed in the Nile amongst the reeds and the Israelites as a nation coming to the Red Sea, also known as the Sea of Reeds. It could be translated that way. 
What happens to Moses at the beginning of Exodus is ultimately a preview of what will happen to the nation in the middle and end of Exodus. So Moses was rescued from water when he was an infant. The Israelites will also be rescued from water. Moses fled into the wilderness for 40 years. The Israelites will also flee into the wilderness. Moses encountered God at Sinai. In Exodus 20, the entire nation will encounter God at Sinai. Moses received divine revelation from God. The entire nation will receive divine revelation from God in Exodus chapter 20. You see, the, the unity of this story is absolutely profound and amazing. That's what is happening here. God is taking his people to the Red Sea. But notice, it, this, this ends in an odd way. Look at verse 18. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Well, that's interesting. In verse 17, it was like the last thing that these people needed was to face a what? <laughs> a battle. Well, what's going on here? Has Moses lost his mind? Are we looking at massive contradictions? No. The word battle, and it's found in other Old Testament texts, Listen to me here. The word battle, it means orderly ranks. It means equipped. It means armed. And I think the best way to understand it is prepared. They are prepared. They are organized. They are walking through the wilderness as a unit. Of course, they will face battles later. We will see that. But at this point, I want us to see that as they are leaving, it's not riot mentality. They are ordered and they are structured and they are determined under the control of the mighty hand of God and through the human instrument, Moses, to get to Sinai. That's the goal. So God is providentially guiding them. Secondly, we also see God's continual faithfulness. And I, I love this verse. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, and now Moses is going to quote Joseph, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Again, this is so profound. What great information Moses places right here. Upon first glance, it's like this comes out of nowhere, but it makes perfect sense in light of Genesis 50, verses 24 to 26. You can mark that down. Genesis 50, 24 to 26. In that text, Joseph, he requests that his bones be taken up out of Egypt and into the promised land. You see, Joseph understood the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant said that God would give land to his people. But Joseph knew the final destination wasn't Egypt. He knew that the promised land would be in view, so he tells those people that were with him in Egypt at that time, when you guys leave, when you depart Egypt, take my bones to the promised land. So with confidence, he asked that his bones would be taken. So Moses here quotes Joseph's words. So I think in some way, Moses hands the pen to Joseph and he wants us to see this from Joseph's perspective. Joseph knew the promised land was in view and he wanted his bones to be there. 
And that's exactly what happened. And by the way, Joshua 24, 32 tells us once they got into the promised land, who was with them? Joseph's bones. It was completed. It happened. His bones finally made it there. One Old Testament scholar says, Canaan represents one's future, where one is headed. Joseph's bones represent one's past, where one has come from. Here, the future and past are wedded. That's God's continual faithfulness. Let's lastly here, in the moments we have left, look at God's guaranteed presence. God's guaranteed presence. Our last three verses. Verse 20, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Verse 22, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So the people leave Succoth. Remember, they traveled, according to chapter 12, from Ramses to Succoth. And that's where they've been as this narrative has unfolded for us. And now they've left, and they're now camping at Etham near the desert. And Moses goes on to give one more important detail. That God didn't remain in Egypt in one sense, that God would continue to be with them in the wilderness as they traveled to the promised land. How would God manifest himself? Well, you're familiar with this part of the story. God manifests himself as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Now, we've already seen God appear in a burning bush, so this idea of God appearing as fire, as a cloud, shouldn't be alarming to us. Now, why does God do this? Let me give you two reasons. First, to show his people that he is with them. They are not alone. To show his people that he is with them and they are not alone. The second reason is to protect them from their enemies. And we'll see this in the next couple weeks as we study Exodus 14 when the Israelites come to the Red Sea. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for Exodus chapter 13 and the profound truth that we find here in light of the redemption that you provided them in Egypt. God, we see your son, Jesus Christ, in one sense all over these pages because the final and ultimate redemption that was found for us came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're grateful that we celebrate really the fullness of what was pictured in Exodus. God, may we, like those Israelites were commanded, may we offer up our families and our lives and our work holy in service to you because of what you have done through Jesus Christ and also because of who you are. You are the I am. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.